Hello again and welcome back to the Foundry Church podcast. My name is Joseph. I am the worship pastor here at the Foundry Church in Winter Springs, Florida. We're so glad that you're joining us this week. Uh, We're continuing in this series called Mountains and Seas and Gardens and Roads. And what you're about to hear is week eight, which is the first week where we're in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We're moving on to a new dominant question uh, that Luke is addressing Uh, in his gospel, which is, how do we mature in service? And the dominant image that we're going to be taking a look at is this image of roads or journeys. Um, In the other gospels, uh, particularly Matthew and Mark, a lot of things happen somewhere. They happen at a place, at someone's house, at a temple, at, you know, whatever. Uh, In Luke, you see a lot more things happening on the way to somewhere. Uh, There's this idea um, that's, I don't think ever explicitly stated, but it's definitely represented with everything that we see, that uh, the journey is very much what matters, uh, maybe even more so than the destination. And so we're going to just be taking a look at that over the next couple of weeks. We're going to be looking at the story of Jesus, uh, the question of how we mature in service, and this dominant image of the roads. So we hope you enjoy this message uh, from our lead pastor, Seth Kane. Welcome. I am so very glad you're here, whether you're joining us in person or online. My name is Seth, and this, of course, is The Foundry, where we're all about a better you and a better world. Um, So we are in like week eight of our series that we're calling Mountains and Seas and Gardens and Roads. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at the four Gospels uh, and the way that the early church, early Christians would have understood and used and went through the Gospels, and that it's like four separate texts written to four distinct communities based on four sets of historic circumstances. And so each gospel is kind of asking and answering a particular question. So Matthew deals with how do I, how do I face change? Mark deals with how do I move through suffering? John deals with how do we receive joy? And then Luke deals with how we, do we mature in service? And so when you put these in this order, it's kind of this reoccurring path, this four-part journey that we are continually cycling throughout our life that leads to a place of de- deeper spiritual transformation. So last week, we ended with uh, John, and we were talking about how do we receive joy. This week, we begin with Luke. And so Luke, this fourth part of the journey here, is dealing with the question of how do we mature in service? So how do we mature in service? And the key imagery of Luke is the road, the key metaphor. Now, this is, in fact, a road, and I know what you're thinking. How come it's not yellow? And that's a good question, to which there is a simple answer. I accidentally painted the mountain yellow... And all I had left was the pink spray paint, so we couldn't have... So we have a pink road, just, it's fine, plus the banner's colorful, we're just, we don't really do things normal here, do we? I don't know if you've noticed that. So, we ended last week talking about John's Garden and the place of lightness and how it's this epiphany place and and it's, it's revelation, it's a place to rest and to be, it's a place to receive this calm, this joy, this peace. But the reality is we can't stay in the garden forever. We can't stay in the garden forever. We have to take, at some point, we have to take this revelation, and now we have to do something with it, or else it kind of becomes wasted. It kind of becomes like a fruit that is left unpicked on the vine. We have to take what's been revealed to us in the garden, and now we have to put it into practice. We have to put it into practice, or else like, we risk reversion to some degree. And at this point in the journey... You've been through so much. You've been through too much to have everything that you've been through wasted. You've been through too much to not have it become something valuable. And this is like what the Gospel of Luke is all about. 
And, and what's kind of neat about this path is that if you think about everything maybe you've been through in your life, my guess is that you know this to be true, that the minute that you like begin to like kind of wake up to this place that you're in, the, the, when you begin to start seeing things from this place, when you get to this place in the journey, uh, this place of a little bit of maturity and growth, it actually gives you the ability to look back on what you've been through as you went through the change, as you went through the suffering. You look back and you're now able to realize like, oh, like that, that, was, that was a learning place for me. All that, that place that you received the bumps and bruises is actually, you can reevaluate them and reexamine them and see things through this new lens and maybe even come to the place of, of accepting the thing that you went through as being a part of how you've come to be where you are. Maybe even accepting it as like this beautiful foundational piece to your history. Yeah. Okay, so now let's, let's talk about some of the history of Luke and what was happening and who he's writing to because that's been important to all this. Luke was believed to be uh, written somewhere around the mid-80s CE. Uh, the, the exact origin of, of his writing is, is uncertain. Like they don't have a, a specific on that, but the scholarly consensus is that Luke, just like Matthew, was writing from the city uh, of uh, Great Antioch. Um, and so we had talked about this in the book of Matthew, the place where the Messianic Jews had fled after the destruction of the temple. And so the idea is that Luke has come along like a decade later, and he's writing after that, like in the aftermath of some things. So while Matthew's gospel is addressed to this kind of singular community, Luke, as Christianity over the decade has begun to spread and thrive and move, move out beyond Jerusalem, Luke comes in and, and he writes this gospel to multiple groups throughout the Mediterranean region, all these various little Christian groups that have begun to spring up over the past decade. So if you go back kind of in that timeline that we've been kind of sorting through, you have in 64, you have the great fire in Rome with Emperor Nero. We talked about that in Mark's gospel, right? Mark is writing to the, the Jews in Rome. Then in 70 CE, you have Vespasian coming along, and he destroys the temple along with uh, massacring the entire priesthood, which is what we talked about with the book of Matthew. And so Mark now, a decade later, comes in in the aftermath of all of that. So with the destruction of both the temple and the priesthood, there, there's this cultural and religious lack of authority, right? There, there's, there's this space now where the people are looking to have somebody lead them. And so this is where the Pharisees begin to step into power because pre the destruction of the temple, the Pharisees were teachers of Jewish religious law, but they were not officially connected to the temple. So once the temple and the priests were wiped out, the Pharisees then kind of stepped into this leadership role. And so what they're actually trying to do is, is a very good thing. I know the Pharisees seem to get a bad rap when you look at it just from our eyes and the story of Jesus, but the Pharisees were, were trying to like help the people move forward. They were trying to help them move forward after they've gone through so much loss. They're trying to reunify the people in the absence of the temple and the, priests and the priesthood. So after the temple falls, they're trying to reimagine how do we like carry on our tradition? How do we carry on our faith in this whole new sort of way? How do we perform the rituals that used to be performed at the temple by the priests? What do we do? So now, as they're moving forward, rather than gathering at the temple under the authority of the priests, they help to shift the focus to, like, the local synagogues, and, and, and they look towards the authority of the rabbis. This is around the same time where things like the Seder meal, the Passover meal, 
became a bit more formalized. It became a bit more systematized. We do this thing this way. We sing this part at this song. We eat these foods, right? Because they're trying to take this entire people group, God's people, and move them forward after they've lost so much, after they lost the temple. So the Pharisees are doing their best to hold the tribe together, to hold the faith together. And so when the Christus followers come along with this new message of Jesus as the Messiah, they're seen and understood to be like a direct threat to the Pharisees' efforts to sustain and maintain Judaism. Yeah, so they, as, as the Pharisees began to like view them as a threat, they felt this need to protect the faith. So they began to issue like prohibitions against the early Christians. They, they were doing things like there was like forcible removal of people from the community. They, they would shun anyone who was claimed to be Christians. They would go as far as to hold a funeral service for somebody who believed in Jesus as a way to say to the rest of the Jewish community that they're essentially dead to the Jewish community. They would go as far as to sit Shiva, a seven-day grieving period for the dead. There was also, there was also a formal curse that was written that was recommended by the Pharisees to be used at the close of every Shabbat service, a curse upon the, the Christian people, just to make sure that everyone in the Jewish community was clear about what the new leadership thought of these Christians. So you can imagine this caused an incredible amount of pain, of hurt, of, of frustration, of bitterness, of resentment throughout the Jewish community. And it's in the middle of all of that chaos that the gospel of Luke is written. So Luke's audience is, is coming to this understanding that they are, in fact, kind of being severed, being cut out of, like, Judaism, their home faith. Now, along with the turmoil in the Jewish community, you also have this idea that the teachings of Christianity serve to undermine, like, the power structure of, like, the Roman Empire. So it was viewed as a threat to the entire Roman way of ruling, which also led to an increase in Christian persecution by the Roman government. So Luke's book is written to these early Christians um, throughout the Mediterranean region who are dealing with being cursed by the Pharisees, who have been abandoned by their Jewish communities, and who are being oppressed by the Roman Empire. So like, how do you respond to all that. How do you deal with that? Do you verbally defend yourself? Do you protest things? Do you take up arms and fight for the faith? Do you cling to traditional practices but maintain? What, like, what do you do? And so this is why the book of Luke is so great, because Luke answers these questions based on the teachings of Jesus. And the teachings of Jesus in this time and this place are very, very radical. Luke is challenging the early Christians to focus on the spiritual maturity throughout this process. He's challenging them to live boldly, to live truthfully. He's challenging them to avoid like self-righteousness and essentially to be peace, to, to live peace, to wage peace into this environment as a way to affect change. And so Luke's gospel is basically this how-to manual for the people at this time. How do you deal with all this stuff? Which actually is quite helpful for us people in our time as well. Okay, so let's look at a few things here in the first half of Luke. Um, how does Luke start his gospel? Matthew starts his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. Mark starts his gospel with the baptism of Jesus. John starts his gospel with the story of creation. And then Luke begins his gospel with the birth of John the Baptist being foretold. It says this. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. 
Both of them were, right, were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. <laughs> and Elizabeth said, why did you have to put that? <laughs> now, in verse 11, an angel of the, uh, of the Lord shows up to talk to Zechariah and to give him this like foretelling of the birth of his son, which would be John the Baptist. Zechariah struggles to believe what he's being told, which results in him being silent for a time. It's revealed in verse 19 that this angel who has come is the angel Gabriel. Gabriel, Gabriel is the only named angel in the book of Luke. And this would have been like this would have been kind of a big name drop, actually. Like this is all very intentional. This would have been a big name drop for Luke's audience. The name Gabriel means God is my strength. Now, there was a tradition, a Jewish tradition, that believed that you were always surrounded by four of the Lord's angels. You had the angel Raphael, who stood, uh, who stood behind us, represents healing. You have the angel Oriel, who stood in front of us, who represents knowing and knowledge. You have the uh, angel Michael, who stood to the right, to, to represent mercy. And then they believed there was Gabriel, who stood to the left, to represent God's power and God's judgment. So when Luke points out Gabriel was there to give this message, he's letting these early Christians know, he's reminding them that God is still with them, that they can trust the power of God, that that will go with them and protect them as they journey into this new way of following Christ. God is your strength was there. God is your strength as you go through all of this. So then after this, after this little section, we see uh, the birth of Jesus foretold. We then have Mary's song. We then have the birth of John the Baptist. Then we have Zechariah's song. Lots of singing in the first couple chapters of Luke. In Luke chapter 2, that's just the first chapter, we get into the nativity scene, the nativity account, Luke chapter 2. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. We're familiar with the story, right? We're familiar with this. We read it every Christmas. But what's interesting here is when you begin to look at this story through the lens of this fourfold path, what you realize is that Luke is not just giving us the conditions in which Jesus was born, just so that we have these little details. Like, th this is another message to his audience. Mary and Joseph are forced to leave the comforts of their home and to travel due to the census that Caesar uh, Augustus has ordered. They're put into this less-than-ideal circumstances, these less, this less-than-ideal environment. The, the birth of Jesus, the first hours of his life are unconventional. They would have been uncomfortable for this young couple. He's born in a room that's meant for animals. He's placed into a feeding trough. This is not how we thought it would go. This is not how it should be going for the Messiah, God in flesh, incarnate, who is coming into the world. And yet, this scene is a very apt metaphor for Luke's audience. They've been cast out of their home faith. They are traveling this new path they're being targeted by the Roman government. This is a very uncomfortable situation for them as well. This is not how they thought following Jesus would go. But Luke is trying to get them to see that it may be, in fact, that it's these very uncomfortable situations, these uncomfortable circumstances that are actually the very places 
where Christ can be born in them. It's all very intentional stuff. So then we see the angel appearing to the shepherds after this in in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. The shepherds at this time were outcasts. They were, they were outcasts. They were people with little skill. They were people with little resources. They were people with little family. They, they were often, people thought of them as less than. They were stinky. They were dirty. They were understood to be as like thieves. They were a threat to, the, to like society at large. They were people who were somewhat isolated and set aside from regular, polite society. And yet in Luke's gospel, this is exactly who the angel comes to. It's these societal misfits who the angel shows up to, who are in fact the only ones who witness the birth of Jesus. The angel comes to them to show everyone what this Jesus character is all about, right? This is why Jesus, Jesus was understood to be like a threat to like the Roman society, because even before his birth, the marginalized were being accepted and welcomed. The traditional hierarchy of power and status and wealth That was all being undermined. No, no, no. The shepherds are going to witness the birth of the Messiah. The birth of Jesus truly was good news that would bring great joy to all the people. Emphasis on the all. So Matthew is writing to the Messianic Jews who are still somewhat like connected to their home faith. Luke is writing to the believers in Christos, in Christ, who have felt a bit misplaced, who felt as though they had been cast out into the dark and lonely night like the shepherds. And Luke's gospel says, no, no, no. Yeah, they're a part of it. They're a part of this thing. Now, what we saw in verse 7 was it said, Mary took Jesus and wrapped him in the swaddling cloth. We also see in verse 12, it says this, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So, the baby Jesus being wrapped in cloths is mentioned two times in five verses. Why, why do we need to know that he is wrapped twice? Why, like, why is that a thing that we need to be aware of? Well, because Luke is trying to let the people know things. He, he's trying to let these newly birthed communities of believers know and understand that they are being held tight in their faith. They're being held tight and made secure in their faith. It's, it's all very, very intentional. Now, here's the deal with the fourth pass stuff, right? Here's what you need to know, is that it can be a bit dicey, this path. Like, it's very rewarding, but it can be a bit dicey because as you're trying to mature in faith and in action, right, you go through these these phases. You go through these paths. The first path is something has changed. Okay, how do I deal with that? The second path is, okay, now because things have changed, I have to deal with this adversity. There's this suffering because something has changed, so how do I move? How do I move through that? Then once you've made it through the suffering, there will be this moment of epiphany, this moment of revelation, this moment of clarity and joy that comes from it. This is the third path, like we talked about with John's garden. But now as you begin to live in light of that revelation, this fourth part of the journey, you can expect like pushback. You can expect there will be some folks around you who don't understand it, who don't get it, who don't know why you're doing this now, who who will maybe even be a bit angry 
because you're making them uncomfortable, because how you live and think and act is all beginning to change, right? It's, it's the basic dynamics for any tension that you've ever faced at a family Thanksgiving. <laughs> that's, that's what this is. You've come to a place, because of everything that you've been through and dealt with in your life, you've come to this place where your thoughts and ideas may have changed from what your family has handed you. You've gone through these experiences, and now you have different thoughts on things like God and religion and politics and life, whatever. And so now you're trying to live your life in a way that aligns with your new thoughts. But your new way of being, actually, as it encounters like the family at Thanksgiving, it kind of is at odds now, isn't it? It becomes a bit difficult. So you could expect comments from the family, little side comments that let you know that they don't agree with where you're currently at. You can expect them to get frustrated with you, and you can pretty much guarantee that you're going to get frustrated with them. This is why Luke is actually so helpful, because the whole book is basically like, how do you deal with family Thanksgiving? That's, that's the whole book. We should have switched the metaphor to like a Thanksgiving dinner. We just have a turkey up here. Right? So if we skip ahead to chapter 4, we see the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, and we have this scene where Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth and is rejected. This is, uh, the, the way that the story plays out is family Thanksgiving, okay? But also what's cool about it is we see like Jesus giving us maybe a way to respond to this, okay? So Luke chapter 14, or chapter 4, verse 16, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So he goes to his hometown, Everybody knows him. Uh, and the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue. He goes to his home church, and the old ladies are pinching his cheeks. As, he went, as was his custom, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophets, Isaiah, was handed to him. So he's handed this prophet, uh, this, this Isaiah. He begins to read this, which is actually pointing to what he's coming to do. The people are amazed at this. They're like, oh, wow, this is incredible. And then he says the thing that you shouldn't say at family dinner. Right? He points out the issues with the family. Watch what he does. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. Okay, okay. So basically, he's like, yeah, you know what you believe about everything? Uh, we're not on the same page anymore. Like this is, he, he like undermines their entire tribalistic mindset with this picture of this love that is greater than just the tribe. It's a picture of this general, universal love that's being offered for everyone. He says, he's saying this is for everyone. Elijah doesn't come to Israel. He goes to the Sidonian widow. Elisha doesn't go to Israel uh, during, for the leprosy. He goes to the uh, Syrian leper. He's saying God uh, is not limited to just our people. God is for all the people. This is like Whatever the consensus of your family is on a hot button issue right now, like climate change, immigration, the liberals, the conservatives, the president, wherever your family is at in general with these issues, this is like you standing up at dinner and saying, no, 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 
I'm on the other side of the fence of this whole thing, right? Like, he's just, he's putting it out there. And of course, with like any family gathering, what happens when the traditions of the tribe are challenged? There's a potential for a lot of tension. Watch, watch what happens here, verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Yeah, yeah, because this is what happens. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> this is Thanksgiving dinner. This is <laughs> People got upset. Jesus was making them uncomfortable with all of this everyone is welcome talk. And unlike our Thanksgivings, we can't just throw people off a cliff because we're going to have to see them at Christmas. Plus, you live in Florida. We don't have any good cliffs. <laughs> this one's easier for us. Just like we have things eliminated for us. But watch how Jesus responds. Luke chapter 4, verse 30. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. He doesn't argue. He doesn't debate. He doesn't dispute. He speaks his truth. Hey, 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 it's bigger than this. It's bigger than what you think it is. He's filled with the power of the Spirit. He ignores the anger and the rage that's being directed, uh, uh, is being pointed directly at him. And then he walks away. He walks away in order to like, go about his, he's got other stuff to do. If you guys aren't willing to move forward, that's okay. I, I, I've got more important things to do here. Right? This, is, this is what growth and spiritual maturity looks like, isn't it? You've grown to the place that you don't have to defend. You don't have to fight. You're spiritually mature enough to walk away in love and to love from a distance for a little bit. It's okay that you're not here yet, but I'm not going to I'm not going to fight about this. Now, in chapter 6, um, we see uh, Jesus choosing the 12 disciples, and then we see Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's start with this, the choosing of the 12. Uh, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Okay, so this, this is kind of an interesting thing here. It says, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray, and then in the morning, he chose his 12 disciples. If you pay attention in Luke, what you will see is that there's this continual reminder about the example that Jesus is setting about how to mature in the practice of your faith. And what you'll see is that Luke seems to highlight these different times that Jesus departs from his group to go pray before he seems to make any like, significant decision. Right? He's like, no, no, Jesus went, he spent this time, he spent time with the Lord, he got some guidance, he got some wisdom, and then he came back and he made this decision. He took action. It's like, yeah, 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 because this is what the people need to do as they're going through. So this is what we need to do as we're going through some stuff. Now, from this point on in chapter 6, Luke uniquely distinguishes between uh, the term apostles and disciples. Okay? When he uses the word apostles, it means the ones who are being sent out. When he uses the word disciples, it's always in the context of someone who is learning, and it's always used when Jesus is teaching. So Luke is sending this message to these early Christian communities that the opportunity for apostleship, that comes as you grow and you mature in your faith. But discipleship, even like amongst apostles, is this continual ongoing process. 
There's always room for us to grow in, in our wisdom and our compassion towards others. We are all always disciples. At least we should be. At least we should be. We should all be continually open enough and pliable enough to learn, to be able to be shaped, to be able to grow in our stuff. Right? Don't let yourself get boxed in. Just because your Sunday school teacher in second grade told you this particular thing about how you should be, like, be open to where the Spirit is leading and moving you, to what God is teaching you, to the experiences that God is giving you so that you can learn and grow. Verse 17 we get into Luke's Beatitudes, and Luke's account is a bit different than Matthew's. Watch what Luke says about this, this situation. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon. That's it. I thought there was another one. There's not. Um, so it, 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 in Matthew, Jesus uh, goes up to the mountain, and he sits as a rabbi would to teach. In Luke here, we see that he goes down to this level place, and he stands to give instructions. Now, it, the difference between the Beatitudes as they're listed in Matthew and Luke is the tone, the specifics, and the verses, the, the text that follows after. So Matthew's Beatitudes are like these deep, solemn pronouncements. For Luke, the Beatitudes are like these personal promises. There's this active verb-type language. He uses the word you and now. It's very active, the things that are very personal and happening at this moment. So let's look at a couple of these. Luke, uh, the first couple. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh, right? Very personal, you, it's very uh, immediate. So when you read the Beatitudes through the lens of this fourfold path and understand them in the context of, of this, of, of how do we mature in service, it actually kind of sheds some new light on, the, on this whole thing. Like the blessing of the poor isn't, has nothing to do with a lack of material possession. It, it's kind of about this place of spiritual poverty, right? If you've gone through this path, you've walked this path, you face the difficulty of change, Change. You've moved through the seas of suffering, and through this process, there should have been this like humbling sort of thing that have happening to you. You've, you've come to this place of spiritual poverty where you realize you can no longer do it on your own, and you are in need of something greater than yourself. And then you enter into John's garden, and you receive this new revelation, this revelation that was not, oh, I figured it out on my own, but that God has given this thing to me. You've experienced the joy of John's garden, and now you are taking that new truth, and you are living it out, so you are moving deeper into the kingdom of God. Yeah, you hunger now because the hunger that you have is not just to feed yourself, but to feed others because you've grown in maturity. You, you hunger to feed others from the grace and the spirit that you have received along this journey. You weep now because of the beauty and the truth of God that has reached deep into your heart and stirred you uh, at this very deep level. When you begin to see this list through this different perspective, it, it shifts, changes our understanding of it. This is actually like kind of a very practical, action-based sort of thing. Jesus then follows this blessing section with a list of woes. The list of woes serves as like a warning for us on our journey, and it basically like corresponds to this, to the, the, to the various blessings. Uh, and then Jesus moves into this section where he gives us this very direct and practical instructions about what all of this might look like. And, and none of this 
Absolutely none of it is like how we would naturally respond to stuff. It's, like, it's very difficult. All of it is something that is going to take a long time for us to learn. All of it is, is not something that we learn overnight. But it's all things that will, in fact, serve to change not only us, but the world around us. It's all, this is like where you're like, I don't, should I keep doing this follow Jesus stuff? Because it's really hard. This is what this list is. Watch what it says. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Shoot. Like, we could just stop there. That, like, how about this? We'll stop there. You guys go work on that for like a month or three years. Come back to me. We'll get to the next line. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. So we're all disciples. We're all in the process of learning and growing, and, and, and this takes time. Jesus is giving these instructions to the early Christians in this Mediterranean region who are dealing with being severed from their community, who are dealing with the persecution of the Roman government. And you know what's not in these instructions? What's not in these instructions with how to deal with frustration, how to grow and mature in your faith, how to grow and mature in who you are, what's not in these instructions is if you would just yell and scream and piss and moan about some things, it'll really be effective. What's not in the instructions is, you know, if you just grabbed a knife and a sword and started swinging around at some folks, you'd... No, this whole thing is about growing to the place where you're able to treat people with love and compassion, like, regardless. He says, bless those who cursed you. Well, what's happening at this time? The rabbis are reading this public cursing at the end of the services. This is like a direct thing. Like, this is a very active thing for us to be a part of. He says, pray for those who mistreat you to the people who are being persecuted by the Roman government. This, this whole thing, this whole thing about uh, if someone takes your coat, if someone uh, slaps you on the cheek, this was all stuff that was happening that they were dealing with. There was rules about, the, about the, what the Roman soldiers could and couldn't do. They could force you to give them things. They could force you to carry their packs, all this stuff. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Uh, you, you love your enemy. You bless those who curse you. You pray for those who miss treat you. This is all very practical instructions for living in the face of uh, adversity. This is all very much a part of like maturing as a disciple. It's really frustrating (laughs) because it's hard because like I don't want to do that because I want to punch the people that say things to me. Do you know? Amen? Don't say amen. Don't amen that one. Verse 31, do to others as you would have them do to you. I think the practical instructions of this often gets overlooked. We know this. We use this. We teach this to our kids. But often it's like kind of just a shorthand for like be nice. Be nice to them. It's extend to others the behavior that you think is best. 
But these words are actually really, really powerful. They're employing us to behave towards each other as we would want other people to behave towards us. And I'm pretty sure we like to be met on our own terms. We like to be spoken to in our own language. We like to be approached in our own stages of development. And none of us like to be bullied or shamed or talked down to. Jesus is telling us that we are to meet people on their terms, not ours. We are to grant others the same human dignity that we wish to have them extend to us. One of my favorite terms that I've, that I've learned over the past couple years that's always stuck with me is this little phrase, which is transcend and include. Transcend and include. The idea being is that if I am growing in my faith and maturing in my faith and I'm trying to elevate myself into this deeper relationship with God, all these things, part of that transcending, part of that growth and maturity means that I have to be willing to include like the whole journey that I've been on. I have to be willing to include those who have not done the work or have come to the place or have not walked the path that I have. I have to be willing to accept that everybody is on their own journey. And so if I am not able to include others where they are at, then I have not fully matured. Like if I'm, if I'm at this level in my spiritual walk and faith journey and how I view the world and everything, and you're like up here and you've got some stuff figured out and like that's awesome, I'm super happy for you. But if you're not able to grant me compassion with where I'm at, if you're not able to, to tolerate if I say something stupid and you're like, why do, then maybe you haven't grown as much as you thought. So part of this whole thing, like, yeah, we have to be able to meet people where they are. We have to have this compassion for people where they are. Do to others as you would have them do to you. One more thing and then we'll wrap up. Jesus tells us parable uh, that kind of exemplifies all of this. You may be familiar with it. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. <laughs> Hopefully you know it. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, this was a highly debated question at the time. All the different rabbis had different responses for all this stuff. Who, who is the neighbor that we should love as ourselves? Now, many of the Jewish people believe that the extension of love of the neighbor was really limited to like our own tribe, to our fellow Jew. But Jesus tells this parable which is only recorded in the book of Luke, this book that is asking and answering the question about how do we mature in service, he tells this parable about a guy who was robbed and beaten and left, left for dead. <clears throat> and then the priest comes by and he sees him and he walks around him. And then the Levite comes by and he sees him and he walks around him. And then you have the Samaritan of all people who shows up and he helps and takes care of the guy. The Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people. And Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Verse 38, he concludes with this. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This parable offers Luke's audience as well as us this revolutionary teaching. The priest and the Levite 
they're operating according to the rules that they were handed by their tribe. This is how it works. This is what we do. We can't touch because this is unclean and we have these things to do. They're operating according to the rules that have been handed to them by their religion and the hierarchy of their culture. But the Samaritan, who is beyond their tribe, who is outside of their tribe, the Samaritan transcends all of that, and he operates with this more engaged and flexible humanity. The Samaritan is held up as the expectation of these new Christians in the Mediterranean region. The Christians are called to move beyond all of the tribe and class and religious lines that have been previously drawn. The story of the Good Samaritan sets the example for how these new Christians are called to love and help not just their own, but all the people. Because the birth of Jesus is good news that should bring great joy to all the people. And so the followers of Christ are being invited to take and distribute that love and compassion of Christ to all the people, even people at Thanksgiving dinner. The fourth path is long. It's difficult, but it does become the most rewarding. Luke is calling the early Christians to this deeper practice He's challenging them to change their previous ways of responding to difficulty and crisis. He's encouraging them to, to offer compassion in the face of oppression. He's encouraging them to use their lives to demonstrate the values of Christianity and the depths of God's love. And this fourth path of Luke is challenging us to do the same. It's not easy. It's quite difficult because now you actually have to do the thing, but it will be worth it. That will do it for this episode of the Foundry Church Podcast. Thank you once again for spending a little bit of your week with us. There's a lot happening uh, in the life of our church right now. You can find all of that stuff on the events tab and the connect tab in the church center app we hope you'll download that get connected with our church and uh, get connected with all the stuff that's happening uh, it's going to be it's going to be a fun fall we've got coming up but for now though that will do it for this episode of the foundry church podcast i'm joseph we'll see you next time have a great week